BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. That's correct. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, October 11th, 2019. Of course, you could be listening to this anytime uh, in the universe. Of course, it's a podcast. Uh, as we always do in a bonus time, I ask our distinguished guest or guests to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, Brother Ben, Brother Dennis, good to be back. Thank you for having me back. My name's Neil Mohammed. Um, I am a healthcare consultant. I do work with uh, rural hospitals all across the country dealing with the exploding cost of prescription drugs and healthcare in general. Formerly, I was a candidate for the U.S. Congress in Illinois' 16th Congressional District um, in the 2018 cycle. Um, it's my third time on the Ben Jarofsky program, and I think the fifth time you get a free set of snake knives. So I'm looking forward to that. Actually, the fifth time will be a, uh, a trivia contest. We're not going to do it today because we have to run oh. over to the Marion Williamson show. But uh, uh, Neil Muhammad uh, was a contestant on Jeopardy. And um, so we've done a few trivia contests here, Neil. We're not, we don't have one for today, but... I'm trying to work together a, a trivia podcast. That's uh, one of my goals here in the last few months is to get a good trivia podcast going. I yeah. am there, and I'm actually a little disappointed you didn't have the Jeopardy stinger queued up yeah, yeah. after I introduced myself. <laughs> just, wait. Like he, just wait. Yeah, just wait. He may uh, get you. And I should say, yes, indeed, this is his third, and it's proved to be one of our most popular bonus downloads. Uh, and I think it's because Neil has a just a very... Uh, straightforward uh, ability to just analyze what's going on and explain complicated things in language that everybody understands. So I hope to build up not too much pressure on you, Neil. Uh, but we've done this in the past on healthcare. We've taken a look at the presidential race. We're going to do a bunch of things. We have, I have a bunch of things on the agenda for today. Impeachment, uh, update on the presidential race, the Democratic primary. I'll talk about China and the limits of free speech. And then like a, a wild card uh, that, that that you threw at me when you came in, You it's on your mind. Uh, Ellen and George. So we're going to try to get to all four of those things. Ellen and George, which in some ways uh, is an extension of the uh, limits of free speech uh, discourse. And let's, let's just let it be known that is not the next uh, ABC comedy series coming out no, soon. Ellen and George. <laughs> Uh, the do, do you think I need to specify who the Ellen and the George? No, are? you did a great job. Of, uh, that cool. was a good tease. Tease. People go, who's Ellen? Who's George? What do they have in common? Oh, I got to stick around to find out. <laughs> yes, indeed. Tell all your friends. All right, let's start with impeachment. Uh, what's the latest uh, on impeachment front? I've been in the studio all day. Give, give us just an update, uh, Neil. And what's the latest? I was weighing. Knowing you're going to ask me that question first, Ben, whether I should cop to the fact that I was actually in Russia last week on vacation while a lot of this news was breaking. Totally non coincidentally, yeah. I was not getting new Bernie bro marching orders from the FSB or anything. <laughs> um, well, I think the latest, and this is just as of a couple of hours ago, 
the former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, I guess, just testified to Congress describing the circumstances under which she was previously forced out. And as the listeners may know, um, U.S. ambassadors to foreign countries kind of come in two groups, right? So one, you know, the the ambassador to Tahiti or, you know, a country that does not necessarily have a high foreign policy profile. Those tend to be wealthy donors, aristocrats, socialites and the like. For other countries, like let's say Ukraine, where there actually is a tricky diplomatic job to be done, these tend to be career foreign service officers. And Marie Yovanovitch was one of those. And, and this, I mean, Somebody listening to this podcast in the year 3000 is probably going to know way more about the story than we do now because this had happened just a couple hours ago today, Friday the 11th. But what's striking to me just in this latest piece is how much of this stuff, one, comes back to Rudy Giuliani, and two, comes back to Rudy Giuliani seemingly being this human morass of internet conspiracy theories. Um, BuzzFeed had a great story, I think it was earlier this week, maybe last week, on Giuliani, and it's connected to those two other guys a million years ago, 72 hours ago or so, um, (laughs) two Ukrainian-Americans who were arrested as part of a campaign finance scandal, also associated with Giuliani. Giuliani supposedly sent these guys to Ukraine because he has come to believe what started as a real, you really had to go out of your way to be even aware of this conspiracy theory kind of loosely described as Spygate. So the idea that there were elements in the FBI, the CIA, or the NSA, just, you know, what people sometimes, you know, derisively call the deep state, that there are elements within the U.S. government that were all along opposed to Trump's being elected. And that's, you know, there was some double secret probation reverse, you know, the, the allegations against Trump in 2016 were part of this effort. Um, they were somehow, you know, hooked up with the Clintons, of course, because all rabid right-wing conspiracy theories eventually go back to the Clintons. Um, there was this just completely, well, it's all completely fictitious, but a really random assertion that the Clinton email server was actually in Ukraine so I, I just say I, I, go, I just say all of that because Giuliani just is somebody who seems to spend a lot of time on Facebook reading the same kind of just bogus nonsense, um, just wackadoodle um, conspiracy theories. But he's in a position, given that he is Trump's personal lawyer, to put that stuff out to the real world and and kind of act on it. That seems to be at least based on initial reports, what's been happening today with the former Ukrainian ambassador. All right. Uh, Giuliani, of course, is uh, Rudolf Giuliani. He used to be the mayor of New York City. Uh, and before that, he was a federal prosecutor in New York City. He was a, he, He's go, undergone what I would call a pretty significant transformation, Neil, uh, from the days where of his definitely as a prosecutor and also uh, New York as as the mayor of New York and he is the unabashed cheerleader uh, defender of Donald Trump and I liken his behavior uh, to the, the the behavior of OJ Simpson's lawyers in the 90s uh, and the way the tactic that he uh, the tactic that he's using he's one trying to whip up support among his base uh, regardless of whether Trump is innocent or guilty just make 
make Trump out to be the victim and play to a sense of victimhood. Two, uh, confuse everybody by throwing absolutely every other thing in the world out there to uh, divert it and attention from the main issue. In the case of OJ, it was did OJ murder uh, two people? In this case, uh, did Donald Trump collude uh, or try to extort the Ukrainian president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden? Uh, and uh, before that, of course, it was the Russian. So he's throwing all the credibility, whatever credibility, Neil, he had uh, had gained as virtue by virtue of the fact that he was a prosecutor and a mayor of a, the biggest city in the country. He's throwing that out the window to become Donald Trump's cheerleader. I, I find that I just find that really difficult to accept that one man would willingly do that. But it gets well, I wonder I hadn't thought about this, but, you know, bear with me. So in the late 90s, you know, after, you know, Giuliani, you're right, started as prosecutor. He was elected mayor of New York. In my recollection was a little hazy because I was 16, but, um, you know, iconoclastic Republican mayor, but very socially liberal. He, you know, famously performed in drag shows at the mayoral mansion in New York, you know, just kind of a, you know, rowdy guy when, you know, he wasn't cracking down on homeless people through broken windows policing. Well, skip past all that. Then after 9-11, he's got his FDNY hat on, touring ground zero, figure of national unity. In 2008, I believe it was, right, he ran for president um, in the Republican primary, bumbling, completely incompetent campaign. At one point, he stopped campaigning and assumed that all of the New York retirees in Florida were going to bring him Florida in the primary election. That clearly didn't pan out. And then you, you flash forward another 10 years, and here we are. And it's not to say he started out as a great guy, because he didn't. Um, but now someone who seems to be completely unhinged, and it's, I guess, an interesting question, and maybe someday we'll know the answer. Um, is he somebody who maybe like Trump, you know, he understands on some level that, you know, the, the cheat code to getting your way in society almost is if you really can stop caring about any shred of dignity or self-respect or, you, you know, if you if you turn off that part of your brain that gives you some sort of like attack of conscience or cognitive distance when you say something that's clearly untrue, you can actually get your way a lot of the time if you can get past that shame. Or he may well, you know, authentically believe some of this stuff. I mean, we've got a generation of people out there, um, in my opinion, um, who really have been radicalized by Facebook Right. They post and repost and repost all these memes about, you know, conspiracy this and Clinton that and um, secret servers and the deep state. And there are some number of people out there and that that is their media diet and it is a closed loop. And I, you know, there's no reason why is all his other problems aside, Giuliani couldn't find himself in that group. Uh, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Does he actually believe the things he said? They, the same could be asked of Trump. Does he actually mm. believe the things he said? I'm going to take a Giuliani first step. I do not believe Giuliani uh, believes the things he says. I watch his performances uh, when he's on the national shows on the weekend, and there's a circle. Uh, to what he said. He'll start off by saying, uh, Donald Trump never did that. He'll say, Donald Trump did that. And then he'll go, Donald Trump never did that. He'll contradict himself within the same loop. And so when I watch that, I go, well, there's no, you know, there's no there there. It's just, he's literally saying what he has to say at that very moment that he's asked a question in order to avoid admitting he did something wrong. Uh, he may like say, uh, yes, we did it. It's not wrong. And then 10 minutes later, we didn't do it. 
Uh, you know, and so what? So either he's a lunatic, which there's always the possibility that sure. life, just the years have mounted up and he's lost his mind, which I'm starting to think Donald Trump is the case. We'll get into that maybe. Um, or he's doing this on purpose. It's a performance. Like I said, I compare it to Johnny Cochran, who was a legendary lawyer for O.J. Simpson uh, back in the 90s uh, that, would, that got O.J. off. So that's how I if do he's it. doing it on purpose, I, I would almost t- I mean, <laughs> I'm almost going to tip my cap to him because I that is profound. I mean, I found when I was running for office, Ben, if I was at a town hall or something, somebody asked me a question, and I gave an answer and, you know, you realize 10 minutes later, oh, it's, you know, healthcare in this country actually costs, you know, $11,000 a head. And I said 12 or something like that. I think to myself, oh, crap, I got that wrong. I feel bad about it, especially, <laughs> you know, maybe if I had the opportunity later, yeah. I'd come back to it and restate. Oftentimes, that wouldn't come up, and you just kind of, oh, you got to wash your hands of it. But it, you know, it bothers you, right? Yeah. It should, it, most human beings, you know, should feel bad when they do bad things. And so, um, you know, I don't want to make light of it because he's doing this in a way that's driving our country even further down the drain and dooming our planet. Um by keeping this guy around while, you know, the Amazon rainforest is on fire. But in a vacuum, um, yeah, that's that's kind of fascinating in its own way. Yeah, I and, and so I think that's the role he's uh, he's t- taking on with relish, and he's been rewarded for it. He's made a fortune uh, as a consultant, and uh, so I don't know if Trump's paying anything. I doubt it. Trump's notoriously cheap. Right. Uh, so... But he's obviously he's uh, promoting his brand. Uh, all right. The other uh, ramification of impeachment is the division in the country. And you would know something about this because uh, you were a candidate in the 16th congressional. And then you tell people a little bit more about that mm-hmm. after I'm done with this. But I've been talking all day about uh, a town hall meeting that occurred, uh, I think it was last week in Michigan, uh, with a congresswoman who recently elected a, a rookie uh, out of Michigan's 8th congressional district. Her name is Elisa Slotkin. The New York Times had her in the Daily. And uh, she's a Democrat in a Trump district, so uh, similar to the 16th. Uh, I believe Trump won the, her district by seven percentage points. She was elected in 2018 when there was the rebellion against Trump and uh, many uh, Democrats won in Trump areas. Uh, And uh, she's been just walking that precarious path, Neil, with this impeachment uh, inquiry. And finally, she came out publicly, said she was in favor of the impeachment inquiry. She had to go home and she faced a very contentious crowd, in part whipped up by the local Republican Party that sees this as an opportunity Mm -hmm. of people who got up and said, and I'm uh, quoting from memory, it's a uh, I cannot believe you're uh, joining the coup against our president. The coup against our president. You're the 16th congressional district. Uh, how widespread, in your humble opinion, is this notion uh, in Trump areas that this is a coup? I think it's growing. I think it's probably more common now, even than it was two years ago when I was running and traveling all across the district. Um, I, I do give Alyssa Slotkin a whole lot of credit. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to look this up on my phone because I'll get distracted, but I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, the 8th District of Michigan is this kind of excerpt area. Because I, I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, so I used to live kind of near there. Livonia in Oakland County, which is a very, you know, conservative area. And yet she, you know, and she's one of these more conservative centrist Democrats who is a recruited candidate by the DCCC, and she has a national security background. I believe she was a formerly CIA analyst or something like that. Yes, she was. Um, you know, so maybe her politics aren't totally 
like mine, but that, that's fine. And, and she's, she ran a really great race and she won. And, but most importantly, she, you know, has the wherewithal to actually go out and do a town hall on the 16th. Adam Kinzinger, I think is now a five term incumbent. Um, two years ago was the la- the first time that, you know, since his first election, he went, you know, three elections with either no opposition or token opposition. Um, in a district where I think Trump won there in 2016, by like 17 points or so. Um, he can't be bothered to do one because he's afraid of, you know, all us progressives who are going to go out there and ask him. There was actually a story, I think this was in Dixon, um, just like a year, year and a half ago, where he was, you know, doing one of these... Um, they called it a town hall, but it was like a closed ticketed event with like the Chamber of Commerce or something. Sort of very staged, you know, control, don't let any of the riffraff. Well, one of the riffraff, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher their story, so I and I which I feel bad about, but it was somebody with a really you know, some retiree living on a fixed income, I wanna say with a disability, but somebody with a you know, a really powerful, important healthcare story to share. Um, not conspiracy theorist, not a lunatic, not somebody, you know, you might be scared of in the same way that, you know, I think one might reasonably be scared of some of these people running around claiming there's a coup against Trump. That's a much more dangerous element in my mind Mm -hmm. than um, grassroots progressive activists in the 16th. That person was immediately grabbed and escorted from the premises because that's how little personal courage and conviction Adam Kinzinger has in his beliefs. So I think the contrast is pretty clear. Adam Kinzinger, in as safe a political district as one could find for him, can't even go out in public, won't do it, blames you know this just subversive, crazy element. Alyssa Slotkin, who actually is in a district that's going to, it was a tough win for her the first time, it's going to be a tough race for her this time. No fear, goes out stares these people down, here's what they have to say, and, and responds in a, in a professional and polite way. To go back to your original question um, on, the coup, on the coup stuff, um, I didn't hear a lot of that even from conservatives two years ago, but anecdotally, because it's, it's been growing everywhere else across the country, I have to think it's becoming more common um, around home. Too. Are you familiar with QAnon? Oh, God. Okay, so... QAnon is a conspiracy theory that started, have you heard of like 4chan and 8chan? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like real underground sites that are uh, occupied by like the far, far right. Yeah. The farthest of the far right. Um, These are the boards. These are the message boards that have put like ne- the original neo-Nazi websites out of business because they're not needed anymore because these people just all kind of, you know, talk collectively on 4chan and 8chan. So somewhere on one of these sort of semi-secret message boards, somebody started this conspiracy theory where somebody named Q. Oh, yeah, I know. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was, was posting, they, claim, they initially claimed that they were somewhere in the security apparatus in the White House. The conspiracy theory was that um, there's an international cabal of secret child abusers, most prominently Democratic Hillary people like um, Leon Panetta and, um, you know, folks like that, um, claiming that Donald Trump was single-handedly taking down these criminal networks, dropping clues about it. It later turned out to be that now some people think that QAnon is RFK Jr. and he survived, JFK Jr., Mm -hmm. survived his plane crash and now is fighting crime. 
we could go on and on and on. That maybe it's maybe it's that'll be episode out. four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very, very whacked yeah. out. The point I'm getting to though, yeah. um, increasingly at Trump's rallies, and this was definitely the case in July 4th when they had that really sad, embarrassing, you know, military parade that was like an APC parked outside the whatever memorial and Trump spoke in front of it. You watch the B-roll from these um, uh, from these rallies, and increasingly more and more people are wearing hats and shirts with the Q logo on them. There's this whole like merch economy around monetizing the conspiracy theory, and it really is just like I mean, I don't want to sound alarmist. I mean, a reasonably dangerous conspiracy theory in terms of how unpeople, how unhinged, excuse me, these people must be, what they actually claim to believe, and what God knows what these people are going to do uh, November of next year if when Trump loses that election. So that stuff is out there. It seems to be growing, if not more popularly held, at least a little bit more overt in public, you know, people wearing shirts referencing the conspiracy theory in the same way the coup stuff or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think it's a real concern. And unfortunately, we can all probably be pretty... Um, uh, pretty safe in guessing that Bill Barr's Department of Justice is not investigating these people. Absolutely. Uh, so given all that, what is your advice uh, about how Democrats should approach uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump? He, you know, um, clearly there's a portion of the population that will not believe anything you could tell them the sun rises in the West if it's going to benefit Donald Trump at that moment, and they will say, yes, it does. You could say the sun rises in the East if it's going to work against Donald Trump, and they'll say, no, it doesn't. So you realize you're not dealing with folks uh, who are reigned by logic. Right. Uh, so I have no idea. I, I'm going to say conservatively, 35% of the country, I'm putting that in that category, and they control a good portion of the states, electorally speaking. So even if Donald Trump is swamped at the popular vote, which I think he will be, uh, he could still win an electoral victory. So given all that, what's your advice about the Democrats? I think it's to, uh, well, the, my first piece of advice is to bear in mind that we're at the start of, I mean, we're not even technically in the impeachment process, right? We're the impeachment in, in inquiry. We're in the pre-impeachment, you know, however Pelosi and her team are defining this. Nonetheless, it is already the case that a majority of people support this process going forward, and nearly a majority, it's closing in a majority, think that not only should the impeachment inquiry move forward, but he should actually be removed. So that, I think, is very encouraging to make the case. The second thing I would say is that, and I hate saying it, it makes me sad, because there are a lot of reasons why Trump should be impeached. I mean, he was in violation of the emoluments clause in the Constitution from day one. He, you know, imposed a non-constitutional ban on immigration and even just travel and tourism from, from majority Muslim countries. We have the whole situation on the border and atrocities being visited upon, you know, legal asylum seekers and, you know, on and on and on and on and on. So as much as it pains me to think that anyone um, like Lindsey Graham or closer to home, I just saw this morning one of the um, political dirt sheets, I guess, uh, John Shimkus from the 15th District just took his name. He's retiring anyway, which I guess is where he gets his backbone from because <laughs> he knows he's not going to go in another, into another election season. 
um, he took his name off the list of pro-Trump Republicans, specifically because of the issue in Syria and mm-hmm. the evacuation of some U.S. troops and what seems to be happening there. So Republicans seem to be willing to finally break from Trump on these national security grounds. And I think that's self-serving and disingenuous. And I don't understand how somebody like John Shimkus can sleep at night knowing all these other horrible things were happening for the last two and a half, going on three years. But somehow this was the one with Syria or with Ukraine that that finally wrote the Syria with him. Syria with him specifically, Syria to to some extent Ukraine Mm -hmm. with some of the other folks. Um, But, you know, take what you're given and, you know, impeachment clearly is the right thing to do, the constitutional thing to do. Um, You know, I do have to think that a national security framing or sort of a national security, um, you know, narrative, it's both true, right? I mean, you're not making anything up that's generally a frame or a message that goes over well with more conservative voters. There is a very strong national security argument to be made as to why Trump is unfit for the office and why Trump needs to be removed. You're not going to get to the Trump is the victim of a extrajudicial coup with that argument, but you can get somewhere. And again, given that coming up on a majority of Americans already support impeachment and removal, even though we're formally only a couple of weeks into this inquiry process, I think is, you know, reasonably promising sign. Well, it's, it's uh, interesting to say that I could tell uh, you have a sense of uh, how these issues played in voters. Uh, if you're in Chicago and you review whistleblower gate, which is what I call it. And mm-hmm. you read the, it's not even a transcript, the white house account of the phone call between president Trump and Ukrainian president, your initial uh, reaction is this is Chicago's reaction. This is a, classic shakedown. This is extortion. It says, I'm going to give you, if you want your money, you're going to have to d- dig up this dirt. And he does it in kind of like a, uh, a smile with a smile on his face. Like, a, like he's been watching a lot of mobsters movies. Um, if you're, uh, uh, Democratic Congresswoman from the 8th Congressional District who's in a swing district and you have to worry about Trump voters, what you say is, I'm very concerned about the appearance, and this is what she said, Mm -hmm. I'm very concerned about the appearance that he was turning to foreigners to do the investigation that we should have the FBI do. I'm like, hey, whatever you got to say to get, you know what I mean? But that's how you're packaging. And she... Most people, Neil, I've been thinking, this is a shakedown. How is this different than what Bakoyevich did here in Illinois? Well, and that's oh, and that's a good point. And something that has just been a huge pet peeve of mine for a number of years now is um, somewhere, I'm not even sure where, maybe you know, at some point along the way, we kind of just collectively decided that the only way that you could know that something corrupt has happened is if there's like a picture of one person handing a big sack of money with a dollar sign, like in the old cartoons of somebody else (laughs) smiling or like, you know, a personal check that says in the memo line for crime and it's cashed by the other person. It's this weird Pollyanna, just super naive way of thinking about it. So you look at the transcript or it's not really a transcript, but the summary, which was, you know, damning enough. Um, you know, President Zelensky of the Ukraine says, um, yeah, so we want these anti-tank missiles. Let's talk about those. Um, and Trump says, and this is even, you know, more of a case, right? Well, let's talk about your, you know, let's talk about uh, Joe and Hunter Biden. And did he literally say the words, 
I will sell you these missiles and sign the export agreement if you get me this Biden kid's head on a platter. Not technically, but are we kidding ourselves? Like, of course he, and I mean, yeah, Blagojevich, um, um, you know, well, with Hunter Biden, right? You know, I don't think you give somebody a job for $600,000 a year um, to somebody who has no obvious qualifications in the energy industry in Ukraine without an expectation. And like, we ought to be able to be grownups and adults about that and sort of acknowledge what's as, you know, plain on the nose and in your face. You're about the Hunter Biden, yes. Mm-hmm. So there is, okay, this is where you, there is a, uh, I do believe it's warranted to raise a question about Hunter Biden's connection uh, to the Ukrainian, Ukrainian company and whether his father uh, was using his position to sort of shelter Hunter, uh, protect him. I, I do believe that's a legitimate criticism. I could see in a moment where a Democrat would raise that against. Uh, but to pretend as though this is where there's a leap of faith on the part of Trump supporters to pre- to to pretend as though whatever uh, whatever favoritism was exhibited by that contact between Joe and Hunter Biden and the Ukrainian energy company somehow or others on the same plane as Donald Trump uh, using his leverage with uh, with military aid uh, to force the Ukrainian president so I don't manufacture evidence who knows what he wants them to really do because there's really no evidence of any wrongdoing uh, is just a leap of faith and it's it's interesting Neil Republicans when they look at this they're very savvy and they'll say look at Hunter come on Democrats look at Hunter Biden you know but then when it comes to Trump and they got the right in front of them they get the words they're suddenly well come on then don't just jump to conclusions you know well that's the evil genius of trump right so it, i think that we will need to dwell on it i think the the hunter biden thing is corruption that seems pretty straightforward to me now no it's not nearly as bad as the president um hijacking american foreign policy to get himself paid or to win an election clearly not mm-hmm. so yeah the comparison is just completely disingenuous but you know wittingly or not he hones in on something that is also yes much less bad but still a bad thing or go back to 2016 like um doing the end around on state department guidelines for using personal electronic equipment to do department business that's a bad thing i don't know i i feel like that stuff ought to be recorded for you know posterity or whatever not nearly as bad as working with international interests somehow to you know hack emails we don't need to play all that stuff but it's it's these um you know there's always a scapegoat that is yes Technically, something else bad also happened. It is not nearly as bad as what Trump has done. And I don't know how to take that weapon out of his hands. I mean, I guess we should all try to you know, behave better, you know, not give these scuzzy $600,000 do-nothing jobs you know, to connected political figures or whatever. But um, yeah, you know, that, that's almost giving Republicans too much credit. So um, yeah, it's infuriating. It, that seems to happen pretty consistently, and they and they wriggle out by looking at something that's 
much less bad, but still bad. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, the, now, we talked about Democratic strategy uh, in this impeachment process. Curious what you think about Republican strategy. Not that you're tremendously concerned about Republicans and the strategy they employ. Not you, a ton. Uh, you talked about John Shimkus saying, take my name off. He's the Illinois congressman that Neil just alluded to. Took, he said, take my name off the Donald Trump support list. Of course, he's not running for re-election, so uh, you got to take that into consideration. But the the issue that pushed him over the top was his belief that Donald Trump is betraying uh, these sort of battlefield allegiances that the United mm-hmm. States has formed with uh, Kurdish uh, fighters uh, in Syria. And the ultimate betrayal is when you leave your brother on the battlefield uh, for whatever reason. And, Neil, you know, I mean, when I think of Donald Trump says, I'm going to getting us out of Middle Eastern conflicts. I believe there was like 50 to 100 soldiers whose mere presence on that area was keeping Turkey from bombing it. That's hardly thousands of soldiers invading Iraq uh, with manufactured evidence of weapons of mass destruction. You know what I'm saying? It's like of all the things in the world uh, to pick as your reason, to uh, as your example of, uh, example of how you're getting out of the Middle East. So... Do you think that's like legitimate on the part of the Republicans that they really, truly do care about this issue? Or do they see this as finally an opportunity for themselves to distance themselves from this insane, sane man who's leading their party? That's a really good question. I mean, I think there are some people that truly believe it. And um, so you mentioned, you know, this very small observational force um, that was left in, in Syria up until a couple days ago. Um because that has a long and, and storied tradition in foreign policy. I, when I, one of the many hats I didn't mention earlier, but I, I, I used to be an academic and I used to teach um, international politics and American foreign policy at the University of Michigan. One of the examples we always used of, um, so there's this, this episode's going to be all about sidebar conversations. So one quick sidebar is that um, this challenge you face is a big country trying to deter another big country. So the United States really wants to not let the the Soviet Union invade Europe. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, well, if the Soviet Union did invade Europe or use nuclear weapons or whatever, what incentive is there really for the U.S. to do anything about it? Are they really going to, just to defend the French or the Germans or the English or whatever, start that war? And one way to get around that question is to make sure that the U.S. has skin in the game by putting American soldiers in harm's way. So during the Cold War, there was a brigade of U.S. Army in West Berlin, which is not enough people to to do anything militarily against 90 Soviet divisions that would be rolling across the border at a moment's notice. But they are there to make sure that American blood is spilled, and that is going to then mean that the U.S. can't choose but not be involved in that war. And so... Um, I think the tr- same is true in Syria. And interestingly, I don't think this has been confirmed, but there were some reports a couple of hours ago, it's all late breaking news um, in this era of Trump, but at least there are some reports initially that actually, despite having supposedly been moved out, you know, off of this front or out away from these observational posts, that there were American soldiers who were hit by a Turkish airstrike. Oh, I had not heard that. So, like I said, unconfirmed. But yeah. um, so I do believe there's some Republicans, who, and, and it's important, they should. Um, you know, 
I think there are a lot of Republicans who might have well been, you know, feeling a little squeamish about this thing, whole thing all along. Are they consciously choosing to think, oh, here's my get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, now I can finally. <laughs> I mean, I think they could have found yeah. that before. So I don't know if it's specifically on that issue. I think there is some legitimate concern. I mean, I think it's well-founded concern. I mean, anytime we think it, we talk about American service members losing their lives potentially abroad, I think it's mostly a genuine conviction. I think it just kind of speaks to... You know, for Republicans, there are some things that matter and some things that don't matter. And for Republicans, I don't, doesn't seem to me that, you know, a bunch of six-year-old asylum seekers being crammed into a dog crate, that doesn't bother them. Unfortunately, it should. Um, so that just kind of reflects where their values are. Yeah, uh, Republican values. I don't know if those two words go hand in hand. I suppose the overriding uh, issue that binds the, both the uh, Donald, the impeachment process with Donald Trump is giving the middle finger to the Democratic uh, congressmen and their subpoenas uh, and the policy in, uh, in Syria by pulling the uh, observers, the military observers away is that in each instance, Donald Trump is acting in a way that he feels he's above mm-hmm. Any accountability, he could do whatever he wants at any given time. He doesn't have to listen to advisors. Doesn't have to follow precedents. He doesn't have to follow the rules that everybody else. Because he knows that he has this. He could just go give a rally in Minnesota tomorrow, and fifteen thousand people will show up and with their MAGA hats cheering him on. And I think Republicans are starting to realize. I hope this is the case. Responsible Republicans, if such a thing exists that that's not healthy for this country. Right. Yeah. Right. All right, let's move on to the 2020 presidential race uh, next week. Uh, our, the next round of debates. How many? I think there's 12 candidates. I think this, that's right. The last time we were on, we were talking about uh, whittling it down. Uh, it's <laughs> Democrats, oh, my beloved Democrats, just... I think we're having more now people on the debate stage than we had in the previous debate. I think it was 10 before. Am I right about that? I think so. So you're going to have 12 now. Um, do you have a fear or a sense that the Democrats uh, are, are kind of just being lost in the shuffle here with, with all the other breaking news? The, the, the presidential run has just sort of like become secondary uh, matter. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that risk. I mean, I think even by Trump standards, the last couple of weeks have been pretty harrowing um, with developments in the news. So maybe some of that is is inevitable. Um, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with the field, um, though a lot of these candidates, I think, are probably coming to the end of the road. And, and I think some people will realize that and make those decisions here in the next couple of weeks. Um I think the bigger issue really is, and I don't know if for some reason the DNC doesn't have this leverage with the news organizations they partner with or they just don't realize it, but um, the even by presidential debate standards, I feel like these the series of debates in this election cycle with this party have been exceptionally bad in terms of... Um, setup and format. I mean, the last debate I thought really stood out, and I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, the the amount of time allocated to each candidate. You know, they they play the tape back at the end of the night and say, oh, you know, Sanders talked for twenty one minutes and Biden talked for twenty three minutes and whatever. The gap for a lot of those candidates. I mean, so you know, Sanders or Warren at one point. You know, it seemingly went, you know, 15, 20 minutes without being heard from while we get to every other candidate polling at one or two percent. 
the 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 connection. Or remember John Delaney when he was in he was initially the first debate he qualified for. <laughs> they used him as the foil for Medicare for yeah. all. So somehow this random joker who no one in that room, let alone in the country, had ever heard of before, yeah. had like the third most speaking time in that debate, and that's that is really troubling. Um, and I again I, I can't pretend to know what's going on in the room um, in those conversations, but. Um, we've got a lot of candidates. Some of them are stronger than others. Um, we can't at the one hand say, you know, for example, someone like Bernie Sanders, oh, he should be doing better nationally than he is. But then he's somehow competing for speaking time with somebody like John Delaney or, you know, Tom Steyer next week. Yes, uh, Tom Steyer, out of nowhere. Hasn't been on any debate. Uh, and now suddenly he's going to be in the big stage. Uh, Marion Williamson, who I'll be interviewing later today, mm-hmm. uh, was in the first two debates, I want to say. Now she's not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's uh, r- There's a lot of inconsistency here. There are. There is. And I can't, I can't see how that helps. The other thing uh, is that uh, for a long time, uh, People come through this studio would say, Ben, they, the Democrats can't concentrate on Trump. Uh, they have to uh, put a, sh- a spotlight on the issues that make them worth voting for. And that would be, I'd say, health care, let's say, or um, co- college tuition aid, that kind of thing. Well, pretty much health care is the main thing, uh, global warming, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and now, of course, everything is on Trump. That's out the window. Uh, I always thought Trump was the main issue anyway. Uh, so... Do you have your sense that the Democrats are losing their opportunity to tell people what's the difference between a Democrat and a Republican and why it's in their interest to vote Democratic? Yeah, I think it varies from campaign to campaign. I think, you know, the Sanders and Warren campaigns, they aren't just the ones that are closer to my political heart, but I think they have the better understanding of where America is right now. I, I, really, really deeply believe, Ben, that something that's really important for campaigns is that there's got to be a narrative. There has to be a story as to why you, the average American, should care, should vote. Why should you vote for me? What are we going to do when we get together, me as a candidate, us as a campaign, you as a voter, what are we going to accomplish? You know, protagonist, antagonist, Whatever, all these terms from high school English, I'm a little fuzzy on. Sorry to Mr. Locasio. Um, <laughs> English the, teacher. The, um, in DeKalb, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I just saw him a couple of weeks. I don't know if he listens to the show. Um, I just saw him a couple of weeks ago at Cornfest. Um, so, you know, for, for Republicans mm-hmm. or for Trump, we're the protagonist. We're the way America used to be. We have been brought down by people of color, people different than us. What we're going to do is to take America back from them. Mm-hmm. Now that's horrible and racist and disgusting, but it is a story. Um, you know, I don't think as a story vote, you know, Biden's campaign is, Hey, you remember that other guy you liked a couple of years ago? Well, I'm, I knew him too. And things are going to be like that. <laughs> yeah. That's not, that's not a narrative. It yeah. doesn't have a beginning, middle and end for, for, for Warren and especially for Sanders. Um, we are suffering and it's not just because times are tough, but here is something that has happened to us. Rich moneyed corporate interests have outsourced our jobs. They, you know, they're the crooked health insurance companies are um, letting folks die in the vine rather than pay for needed hospital care. Something has happened. Here is who is to blame for that happening. 
and here's what we're going to do about it as a result. Um, I think Sanders understands that. I think Warren understands that. I After that, I think there's a big drop-off in terms of um, um, whether the other candidates understand that. I mean, you know, I, I said this, because like even my own campaign, you know, I guess I was maybe a little bit more idealistic um, than one of the other candidates or a couple of the other candidates. Um, but I don't understand how you go into a room full of people and tell them, here are all the things we're not going to do, mm. or here are all the reasons we can't act. Sorry, that them's the rules, them's the breaks. We just got to be realistic. That is not a mobilizing message. That does <laughs> no. not want you to get out yeah. there and win one for the Gipper and storm the best deal or whatever. It isn't, it isn't, yeah. It's not motivating. It doesn't yeah. get people to <laughs> want to do right. something. It's depressing. Yeah. And yet you've got presidential yeah. campaigns that are basically making that their pitch. I, well, I, I do not understand their strategy on that one, uh, but it really irritates me to no end when I see uh, columnists, for instance, um, tell voters, stop asking for health care for all. You're never going to get it. Stop asking for college tuition. You're never going to get it. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just go along with this system that's terrible right now. I'm broke. I, I can't get, you know? So, yeah. I, I, had, a, I had a buddy who... Um, <laughs> from grad school who teaches political science, I think at Cornell now, and his research was really interesting. And like most great research, it is great because it takes something that is screamingly obvious in hindsight, but actually puts some data behind it. So what he found was that, um, you know, campaigns were sending out a lot of like emails saying that, like in 2008, for example, um, sending out emails saying something along the lines of, um, times are tough. We're in a recession. Send us some money. Now it turns out, or if you remember, if you remind people about how broke they are, they are actually, and it's going to be measured. And he did a really good job with it. it. You can show that reminding people that they're broke and times are tough is not necessarily a great way to get them to make a campaign contribution. By the same token, telling people that things are hopeless and things can't change, I don't think is a great way of getting people out to vote. Certainly not to knock on doors, certainly not to talk to their neighbors. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I would take it a step further. Um, when I see or hear the reaction to, let's say, a Bernie proposal, where Bernie says this is part of a larger struggle and we're going to force uh, a redistribution of wealth in this country, and we're going to force a people, wealthier people to pay more in taxes to pay for the programs that you know you all need, and there's a response to that, I... I don't even think it's the issue is electability. I think that there's uh, interests that are being protected. And these are candidates that represent those interests. And I think people uh, understand that in some just fundamental way. And that's par- par- part of the reason why voter turnout is so low. Right. No, I think people have definitely internalized the message. They've been taught it either overtly or like subliminally that politics is not for people like me. Politics is for people who grew up in a wealthy town in California, New York, or wherever, and went to the right school, went to the right college. And um, there is a world out there called politics, and is not the world in which I live. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the collapse of the labor movement over the years has been a big part of that. Labor was a big way in which people had a connection to organizing and being part of a group and being part of a group with a political interest that unfortunately does not exist for a lot of workers today. Um, the promise in particular, and I happen to think this is what 
um, to my mind, separates even Sanders from Warren is that he talks about politics specifically in that vein of this is a this has to be in order to be successful a mass movement. Here mm-hmm. is why politics matters, and let's make the app and the whole thing. But um, let's make the barrier to entry to do politics. And what people don't realize, of course, is doing politics is way less complicated and way less scary than it is. It is not actually that scary as, as I learned firsthand. Um, to knock on people's doors and say, hey, my name is Neil, I'm running for Congress, here's why, love your support. Um, It's only by getting a a lot of people to do that, and specifically a lot of people to do that who have not been doing it previously that we're going to get anywhere. And I think that's what um, Sanders, by virtue of his personal experience doing organizing and and civil rights and whatnot, um, gets on a level that most other politicians nationally, unfortunately, don't get. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct about that. And, And he makes it a resounding part of his message is that it's beyond me. Uh, we need a movement. All right. Uh, limits of free speech. Uh, I guess I could call it China gate. Uh, this erupted this week. Uh, my beloved NBA, I'm a huge basketball fan. As you know, Neil, uh, the national basketball station, there was a general manager, uh, a relatively obscure person in the hierarchy of the NBA. Uh, I believe his name is Maury, Daryl Maury from the Houston Rockets out of nowhere, tweeted out support for Hong Kong protesters. I think Daryl Morey is more of the conservative persuasion. My recollection uh, is that he may even have been a Republican, but don't, don't hold me accountable to my fuzzy memory. Anyway, all hell broke loose. Uh, China responded with condemnation. How dare you uh, get involved in our business? And the NBA, at their initial reaction, retreated. Uh, Maury took down the, the, the tweet. Uh, there was apologies offered up by NBA executives. We all know what was really going on here. Mm-hmm. The NBA is trying to expand into China. It's a huge market. It's billions of dollars at stake. Uh, sneakers to be sold, TV shows to be played, audiences to win over. Uh, you cannot offend the leaders of China and because that will risk uh, your access to that market. So First Amendment, free expression, all those things we talk about in the United States, open window, out there. Uh, that's my general sense of things. What's your take on all this? Yeah, well, and I think it's, I think it's interesting this all started with the Rockets specifically because, of course, the Rockets, when they drafted Yao Ming, that was really when the NBA took off in China and became a big deal. I, When I was in grad school, my girlfriend for, for a long time, uh, her family was Taiwanese, and so um, she knew a bit of the language, and it was the Rockets games, the ones that were televised all the time in China because people wanted to see Yao. And it was actually kind of funny because for a lot of the American-born players, um, I guess it's hard to like transliterate, um, you know, non-Chinese names into, um, you know, Chinese phonetics and Chinese um, scripts. So a lot of the players in the play-by-play in China are referred to by nicknames. So if you remember who Sheen Battier was, the yeah. he was out of Duke. Yeah, he was Old Wrinkly Head. Oh, than that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look him up on Google Image Search, he <laughs> follically challenged he like, both, yeah, both yeah. myself and Dennis. Um, yeah, he, yeah. I remember him, uh, Shane Battier. Yeah, yeah, he played for uh, Detroit for a long time. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So Rockets, epicenter of, of, of Chinese basketball um, <laughs> fandom. And not only to your point, Ben, that was clear what was going on with the NBA apology, but there were two apologies. 
one was in English and one was in Mandarin. The one in English was like, oh, we're really sorry, but, you know, it's important to defend Daryl Morey's right to, you know, his political opinion. The 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 Chinese the Mandarin version of the same press release was even more over the top in clawing and we are so sorry for the great offense we have blah 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 um, and you're right certainly about the leverage and you know the reason I want to talk about this like we we're talking about before I got in the air um, taking stock kind of, of the role that China now plays in the international system, the international economy. We're both old enough to remember a time 20 or 25 years ago in the late 80s and early 90s where, um, you know, the Cold War has ended. And it's not, and this was, everyone believed this. This was not a niche belief. Everyone believed that um, it wasn't just America's economic power or military might that won the Cold War. It was this idea of the value or the symbolism of the power of American culture. So there's this political scientist, Joe Nye. Um, he was an undersecretary of something or other for a while, but he was also a professor at Harvard. He wrote this article in Foreign Affairs called, um, the, the, the gist of the article was this concept of soft power. Mm-hmm. So you, political power is often coercive, right? Give us this territory, we're going to send the tanks in, or we're going to withhold economic aid or so on. But there was this alternate non-coercive source of political power called soft power, which is, um, you know, exporting anecdotally, right? They hear these stories about folks abroad who learned English by watching Baywash or Simpsons or, or, <laughs> or whatever. There's aspirational quality to American culture. And that, you know, sort of drew people to the American project. And that's why, you know, the U.S. won and the Soviet Union lost. And we were in this period where it's the end of history. Everything's going to be OK. Um, and that is a big reason why we need to embrace China, because if we do that, the same thing will happen yeah. as with the Soviet Union. You'll have all these young people, and they'll be accustomed to American things and the glories of capitalism, and um, you know, let's bring them into the fold, and over the long haul, our, our soft power will win out. And that is not what happened. Um, it turns out that what we thought was, for example, the democratizing power of the internet and the web, that is almost easier to use as an instrument of social control, which is what the Chinese government has done. Um, it turns out that once you know China was given um, permanent, permanent normalized trade status with the U.S. and eventually joined the WTO, the World Trade Organization, that you know, reduced tariffs, reduced all sorts of non-tariff barriers to economic cooperation with China. And so you, that finally removed the last sort of inhibition for American companies to outsource jobs to China. Once they did that, that actually completely eroded the ability of the U.S. to manufacture things domestically. And, you know, folks, 2020, Andrew Yang talk a lot about automation and how that's um eroded American manufacturing jobs. And that's true in part, but um, the economic research shows that actually the bigger factor was China entering the, the WTO. And that's when jobs just collapsed seemingly overnight in this country. Well, now that that capacity is in China, of course, no one has any leverage over them. You know, of course, Apple is going to, you know, 
Um, they eliminated, I think, the Taiwanese flag from the iPhone operating system, at least for people in Hong Kong. They removed an app from the App Store that people in Hong Kong, these really brave, courageous people, were using to, um, it's like a crowdsourced mapping thing. So they would, you know, mark, you know, here's where the cops are hiding out. That got taken down because how can Apple afford to upset China when that's where all the iPhones are manufactured? There's this really powerful, coercive force that has been handed over to China. And now those chickens are coming home to roost in a way. Um, th- those, those dreams of 20 or 25 years ago, here's how we get to a liberal, capitalist, open market, open society, um, uh, Chinese system have not at all panned out that way. Absolutely. Very, uh, and, and there's some parallels to what China uh, is doing in the way they control social media uh, to position the Hong Kong protesters uh, as this evil force. Uh, some parallels to what Donald Trump is doing with social media and his supporters uh, through Facebook, etc., to uh, diminish and marginalize the, uh, the investigations and the opposition they're facing. I see and to um, demonize immigrants, et cetera. Yeah. Some of the same language uh, is being used. And to that point, like you were talking about a few minutes ago, um, you know, in terms of whose interests are being served, um, we've all wrung our hands and we've had congressional inquiries over Facebook and political advertising. Trump is still running horribly vicious, lie-filled, race-baiting campaigns. And well, not race baiting in the Biden thing, but running the same kind of social media advertising on Facebook that he always has. Nothing has actually changed. And in fact, there's a story earlier this week. Um, I think uh, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, so don't hold me to the details. But the gist is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is now t- telling people internally, well, we can't let Elizabeth Warren be elected president because she's going to break up the monopoly. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. He can talk about what a great guy he is and, you know, social liberalism, this or that. But you know, seemingly, um, you know, the Marxists have this one. People go where the money is. And um, if you think Mark Zuckerberg or Facebook has any interest in a Democrat being elected or certainly a Sanders or Warren Democrat who might do something about their stranglehold on that part of the tech economy, I think you've got another thing coming. Absolutely. All right. We'll close down with your thoughts and observations about Ellen and George. Uh, the floor is yours. Okay. Now, <laughs> I, I've had, I have a lot of pet peeves about politics that, yeah. Ben, you have been so kind <laughs> to let me air out every couple of months on this program. Um, but this is one of the bigger ones, which is why I wanted to talk about it. So, um, and I'll cut this a couple of different ways. So, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned before that I used to teach political science at Michigan. And one of the, you know, when I taught, when I taught excuse me, Introduction to World Politics, or what most most programs call international relations, we talk about, okay, what is the difference between democracies and non-democracies? Well, one big difference, it's in the name, democracies have elections, non-democracies don't. Well, why does that matter? Well, you might think that in a democracy leadership, you can't bribe a country, you know, hundreds of millions of voters in a country with 330 million people in it. You can't pay off enough people to stay in office. You have to actually, at some point, do your job in order to be elected and maintain political power in a, you know, banana republic. You know, you keep the the the, the generalissimo happy, and you, you throw some bribes and some, you know, whatever. 
you can stay in office for a long time, but you can't do that in a democracy. So we think, long story short, in a democracy, people are on some level held accountable for the record. George Bush, I mean, I'll pause here for a second. What actual consequence has he paid for him and his advisors lying us into a war that cost trillions with a T dollars that killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Iraqis, did not destabilize the entire region, basically kind of sort of more or less directly created ISIS, or at least the conditions that led to ISIS, um, did nothing to make us more safe from international terrorism. What, what penalty did he pay for that? Zilch. Nothing bad has happened to George Bush or Dick Cheney, who I think yesterday was actually speaking at College of Beloit um, near <laughs> Rockford. Nothing happens to these people. Yeah. Nothing ever happens to these people. The worst that can happen to someone like George Bush is, well, as an Iraqi journalist famously did, somebody throws a shoe at him, mm-hmm. calls him a you know, name, or you know, has a go at him on Twitter or whatever. That is the most political expression that most of us have in the face of this all-encompassing, horrible, evil, heinous thing that happened. Mm-hmm. A little bit of shunning, not being maybe invited to the right parties, maybe not getting to be on TV at the Cowboys game, the luxury box. That's almost all we can hope for. And then along comes somebody who, you know, I, I think she would probably describe herself as a Democrat, at least most of her viewers would describe them themselves as Democrats, I'd, I'd, I'd hazard to guess. Fails to take that opportunity. Ellen DeGeneres you're talking right. about. Does her bit, and, and she's one person, and I mean, that. This is not obviously just her fault, right? This has been happening for a long time. Um, but in the face of criticism, not only doesn't doesn't even sort of nod toward, yeah, I guess you know he's not a great guy. Maybe I should have thought. No, complete counterpunch. You, random person on the internet, who made a joke at my expense for hanging out with this criminal, you're the problem because you're not kind enough. And if only people were kinder to each other, the world would be a better place. That is bullshit. That is not true. And it's just the height of sanctimony. There's this great article I'd encourage everyone to read from the dearly departed Gawker.com. Um, <laughs> Tom Skoka, he, I, still, I still think about this essay sometimes. He wrote a great essay several years ago called um, On Smarm. And it was this, um, the, 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 the setup was smart, snark versus smart. So snark is people being ironic, making jokes at, at Ellen's or George Bush's or whoever's expense. Smarm is the how dare you were mm-hmm. better than this. And the how dare you were better than this is only deployed and can only be deployed in the service of moneyed, elite, powerful, cocooned, privileged interests. When you say that you're mean for making fun of Ellen hanging out with George Bush, that is only to George Bush's benefit. And that kind of takes away what I was saying earlier, what often, unfortunately enough, is the only way that most of us can express, not that, and Lord knows I've 
gotten in trouble before on Twitter for making fun of people, but not that that's going to change anything either, but at least it's something. It's a tiny, tiny pinprick. It's a grain of sand on the beach. It is the, the, the least that George W. Bush deserves. And yet here somebody is saying that even that's going too far. It yeah. just drives me insane. So that's my beef. Well, with- it's, uh, I think it's a legitimate beef. Uh, the, uh, you're, in other words, we, you withhold your approval of somebody. It's the, that you're withholding so approval. A year ago, there was a story, I think it was in the New Yorker, Alan Dershowitz was complaining that when he volunteered to defend uh, Harvey Weinstein from all of his rape accusations, he was no longer being invited to the right parties in the Hamptons or wherever, some Ritz, Tony. I actually think it was when he was defending uh, Trump. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think it was, was. Dershowitz oh, yeah, right, was defending right. Trump uh, out of const- <laughs> some cooked up constitutional basis. The reason I got him confused with that sexual assault case is that then he turned out to be knee deep in the Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, that is correct, Senator. So, uh, but anyway, yeah. yes, he was, he was. But uh, you understand my point. Yeah, his point. I think it was, and don't quote me, but I think it was Martha's Vineyard. Mm. He was not allowed. Uh, he was, he had a home in Martha's Vineyard and he wasn't, I read, read the same right, article. Right, right. Uh, but yes, indeed, at some point, all anybody could do is withhold their stamp of approval uh, and sort of shun somebody socially. And apparently I would be, it's not even a defense. The only point I would make is that I, I have this feeling that people in that uh, the the rarefied air of privilege and Ellen DeGeneres is there. Uh, they to show their disapproval of Donald Trump have embraced everybody else. And I'm, I don't even know if what I'm mm, saying is true, mm-hmm, even mm-hmm, as I'm saying mm-hmm. this. But I there's a there's a part of our like I mean, this explains journalism to you, right? I think. Um, I think there's probably a part of like our reptile brain that just wants there to be two sides or wants, you know, I think it, I think it's probably kind of hard to like reckon with the idea that the world, here's a bummer to end the show on. Um, (laughs) it's, it's hard to really grapple with the idea that the world is as fundamentally unfair as it actually is. So I think, I think what you're getting at, I think that's true is that maybe on some point, a lot of us want to rehabilitate George Bush, because we almost have to believe that the other side of the equation is not as bad as what we've... Neil, I'm going to go one step further, and I've said this before. I think George Bush was actually worse as a president than Donald John Trump, and I'll put it to you this way. He had this... uh, veneer of compassionate conservatism while he unleashed all these economic programs across the board that hurt the most vulnerable people. Number one, number two, as you said, he drove us into war. Trump, Trump hasn't done that yet. That's definitely on the scale of George Bush. And he did it while playing by all the rules and the convention, he went, went to the UN to get their approval. He dragged mm-hmm. out Colin Powell to get his approval. He had a vote in Congress to get their approval. He got everybody to approve. He played the game. Donald Trump isn't playing the game. He does whatever he wants. He right. gives you the middle finger. He breaks all the laws. And But what he's doing, I, I think the breaking the laws is, is obviously an impeachable offense. But the actual things he's doing, I don't see as being that much different. His tax cut is not much different than the economic oh, policies of George Absolutely. W. Bush. And yeah, Paul Ryan stuck around long enough to make sure that happened. Yeah. Yes, he did. So anyway, I I want to I, I don't know if that's a, a a positive way to end the show by saying, hey, look, as bad as we like Donald Trump, he's not as bad as George Bush. How about that? Is this a positive enough for you, Neil Muhammad? <laughs>
All right. Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. Neil Muhammad, uh, it's been a blast talking politics with you. We do it uh, uh, all the time here in the Benjirovsky Show. Look at that upbeat music from Dennis. and uh, Jeopardy. Oh, that's Jeopardy. Right. You got a trivia question for him? No? Uh, how was your experience today on the Ben Jarofsky show? Okay, that's five out of five. Uh, right, up. Wait, hold on. Let's give him a real trivia. Well, hurry it up. We got stuff to do. <laughs> All right, we got stuff to do. All right. Um, for 10 trivia points, <laughs> this is the only trivia question I can think of right okay. now. Who is Barry Goldwater's running mate in 1964? Oh, my God. Uh... I don't know. Wow. Find Ben Jarofsky on Jeopardy next week. Uh, I, I just forgot his name. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Stephanie Miller's father. Uh, whatever. I'll think of it uh, later. I just blanked on his name. Well, there's a... Oh, there we go. You never asked... You, show you know what? I asked the guy a trivia question. think he's going to get the right answer. And I can go, ah, oh, you're smart. I don't even know the answer. All right, boy, here we go. Here's a, here's a trivia question based on something we did in the show today. You ready? Um, what's the song, man? Sing the song. <laughs> I can't go for that. Yes. No can Who's, do. I can't go for that. No. No can do. I can't. Who is the singer of that song? That's a song? <laughs> That's a legitimate response. I will not hold you accountable. It was my rendition of Hall and Oates. The correct question it would no, if it's Jeopardy, who is Hall and Oates? Anyway, uh, uh, enough trivia questions for Neil Muhammad. We're going to bring him on for a real trivia show uh, as soon as we can figure Paul out Paul Notes what. reunion show to follow. That's correct. Neil Muhammad, thank you very much. That's the end of another great Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody.